0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode
1: include Yes, Anding, newbie friendly RPGs, short story structure, and Henry Wallace. We average 9 new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG. The one true source for RPGs. You enter a 40 foot by 40 foot room. The door is on the east. There is a table in the middle. It is covered with Doritos. You are in the gaming hut. (laughs) Robin, um, you wanted to do something in the gaming hut, and you definitely did not want me to negate you, so uh, why don't you set it up, and then I will just sort of encourage and expand.
0: Okay, so what I'd like to talk about in this segment is the principle of yes-anding, which is an idea that comes from comedy, and specifically from improv comedy, and looking at ways that we can import it into role-playing, GM, and playing and to what extent the role-playing tradition differs uh, from the improv tradition and why there are things that you might want to do in one and not in the other. But ultimately, what can we learn from this other somewhat related field? And so I guess the first thing to do is to explain what yes-anding is. And the idea simply is that you listen to what other people are contributing to the fictional narrative that's being created, And you, as you suggested earlier, you don't negate what they do, but rather you accept what they do and then you build on it. So that's the yes and the and. So I thought, uh, Ken and I, uh, it's always better to to demonstrate than to talk about it. So I thought, first of all, we would give you an example of negation in an improv uh, context. So, uh, Ken, let's assume that you and I are doing an improv scene uh, for our many rapturous comedy fans at a gigantic improv club, and you are going to present a premise to me as the, at the opening of the scene, and I'm going to demonstrate the wrong way to do it, first of all, by negating you. Okay. So uh, you've been given uh, a uh, sample location uh, at the ice cream store, and uh, you are a scuba diver at the ice cream store, and you are supposed to open the scene somehow by making that interesting and funny.
1: Okay. Is this ice cream soft serve? Because if it isn't soft serve, it will deform under the pressures of the deep sea.
0: Uh, I'm sorry, roll out of ice cream. And so that derails what you're doing by, you know, you're trying to set something up where we discuss uh, ice cream and the deep sea and try to wring some sort of comic interest out of that. And instead, I just shut you down. I negated you and threw you off what you were doing. Uh, now, so let's retake that again. And this will be an example of me uh yes-anding you.
1: Good afternoon, ice cream purveyor. Is this ice cream soft-serve? Because if it is not soft-serve, it will not deform under the pressures of the deep sea. It is
0: soft-serve, definitely, but I have to warn you that it attracts octopi. You don't have an issue with octopi, do you?
1: I don't have so much a moral issue with octopi, but do the octopi that it attracts tend to engage in pointless, distracting activities. The point of deep-sea diving is to go deep, not to wander around with octopi. So I need to attract only sort of staunch, depth-minded octopi. Do you have an ice cream that's uh, suitable for that one?
0: Yes, we do. It's a tasty, human-flavored soft serve with kelp. Ooh. And so there you see, there's the scene. We were able to hit it and go back and forth. And so I yes-anded Ken by taking the idea that he gave me and then building on that and so the question that i want to look at is to what extent can you take that principle of being open to what the other person is doing and running with it and import it into a role-playing game context Uh, in the history of role-playing games we sort of have had an opposite paradigm as the sort of opening gambit in the early days of D&D, which was almost sort of the opposite of yes ending, which is that the dynamic often was the players are trying to get away with something, and it's the DM's job to keep them in line and shut them down. And if you've came up during that tradition or you're influenced by other people who played during that tradition, that tends to a situation where, first of all, you play hyper-cautiously because part of the DM shutting you down is, presenting you with hazards of the environment. Um, And part of it is also something just where a really rigorous goal line of who's allowed to say what is established. Now, since then, obviously, we've uh, abandoned that in a lot of the story game tradition in particular, in which players have more and more been encouraged to seize and make use of narrative control. Uh, So we had, you know, Feng Shui had just a very simple early example in the, in the early nineties, which was the players are free to describe things that are in their physical environment during a fight and use them to hit the bad guys, uh, all the way toward our extremely improv oriented story game tradition today. So the exercise then becomes opening yourself up to other people's creative contributions and, uh, building on them and so as a uh gm for example if a player has a sort of a kooky idea you can and and brings a suggestion to the table uh so uh let's say that uh ken you are the uh the dm in a sort of D ish fantasy world and uh there's a big quest on to uh find and capture the the king of the knolls and i come to the table at the beginning of the session and uh, i say hey what's that glint over there on on the ridge line what do you as a dm do if you are in the old-fashioned uh mode that we were disc well not the old-fashioned mode that's uh, pejorative uh the earlier paradigm i
1: i, I uh, assuming that the glint was not described in um in in flavor text right or that i didn't set it out I say uh, something on the order of, what, glint are you talking about? Right.
0: And if you are then uh, yes-anding me, what do you do?
1: I say, roll a perception check and see if you can make it out more clearly.
0: Right. And so what you're doing there is you're allowing the players to uh, seize uh, narrative controls, and there are uh, both upsides and downsides to adopting that approach. So, uh, Ken, what would you... Uh, characterizes as the upside of adopting a yes-anding approach for player input toward the gm
1: well like the um uh, uh like like as the independent uh, gaming movement story gaming movement has noticed if you allow and encourage players to contribute to the story you get more engaged and interested players they're not uh simply sort of slogging through the adventure waiting for the gm to get around to the interesting part they're actively looking for things that interest them which is what a sort of a, a reflex that I think you want to encourage in players in general. Uh, I think that um, in, you know, games that are more or less structured as a series of gladiatorial bouts, that has more or less place. I think certainly your feng shui notion that you can always assume that there are bones and uh, broken skulls scattered around the floor of the kobold cave uh, makes perfect sense, but uh, you know, saying I pick up the uh, jar of cobalt killing acid and dump it on them is perhaps out of line,
0: right? And and like anything, there are upsides and 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 downsides to it. One of the the downsides, as you've just suggested, is that the control of the narrative can then shift over into unearned control over the tactical situation, where if there, particularly if there's a rule set that spends a lot of time giving you powers and working out the math of how your fighting abilities contrast with the fighting abilities of everybody else in the battle net, it makes a difference to be able to just say, oh, well, I just go and chop off his head without having to do the requisite die rolling and use of crunchy bits in order to achieve that. So this is something that is more useful, I think, in the narrative part of play than in the strategic and tactical part of play. And it's also of greater use during the opening of sequences of something that you do while there's a lull rather than in the middle of a deep dark, uh, you know, in, in the depths of a scene. So if we go back to the improv example, one of the keys to uh so-called long form improv, which is the more free form version, as opposed to the sort of gamey oriented thing that you may know from uh the, this line whose line is it anyway uh tv show which is more about you know doing cookie games and singing and stuff within very you know strict parameters long form is just about building a scene on stage and hoping it goes somewhere interesting and therefore funny and the idea there is to find what the game of the scene is really early what the basic comic uh conflict is between the two characters and then once that is established you stick to that rather than continuing to add new things you explore the one new thing that you developed at the beginning and come to you know hopefully a resolution of the scene or just the lighting guy finally hits the lights when it kind of hits a lull and so in improv you're not constantly yes anding the other person to the violation of the premise of what's going on you are yes ending at the beginning in establishing the premise, and then as you go along, the scope of what you can add to the mix steadily decreases. So, to go back to our role-playing example, it's one thing to say, oh, I spot a glint over there uh, up on the hills. That's something that instigates a situation and gets you moving and gets you started toward doing something. But once you go up the hill and see that there's a an encampment of mercenaries, it might not be acceptable given what the standards of narrative control are in a scene to then in the middle of the discussion with the chief say, well, clearly I've known this guy for, for years and years and uh, he's, he's lying. Now, if you're really deep into the scene, that may completely throw the GM because they've already got things rolling. Whereas if you do it at at the top of the scene, that gives the GM Time to adjust and time to yes and you another drawback that makes yes anding a little bit problematic sometimes in role playing is just the degree of preparation a GM has to do to make things happen, and that comes down to the complexity of the rule set that if you you know need to do a bunch of homework to make sure that there's a proper and fun fulfilling encounter with the Knowles or the mercenaries or whatever it's difficult if suddenly in mid-adventure, everybody decides to go off and fight the snake people. Uh, But in a game where coming up with the stats for the snake people is something you can do off the top of your head, you're freer to yes and the suggestion of, let's skip this interaction with the mercenary and see what's going on with the snake people.
1: Yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons, as well as the generational uh, shift that you mentioned, that yes anding is so sort of, assumed to be a part of, of, of a game like Fate that is really easy to run on, on a fair degree of uh, spur-of-the-moment inspiration and the with obviously fairly uncomplex uh, foes and, and antagonists and characters in general because you just sort of start naming aspects until you think you're done and you've got, you know, enough information to, to fight them, um, uh, assuming you have a, a general idea of how they compare to the uh, heroes on the various uh, characteristic parameters i think that another thing that yes ending can do is in your if you are in the course of the game yes ending can serve as a signal that the gm can pick up on if if people are you know looking for glints on the hillside that's one thing if they're looking for tracks on the road in front of them that's another thing if they're you know saying my elf grew up in this area he knows that it's full of fell um uh, you know subterranean dwarves uh that's yet a third thing, and so the yes ending can sort of help the g m tailor the the story to the players not just to their expectations but also to what sort of adventure they're 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 in the mood for they're looking for i mean again you you don't necessarily want to let the players narrate all the surprise out of it, and you certainly don't want them to narrate all the tension out of it it's like oh don't worry, this mercenary is my long lost brother, and he'll help us kill all the knolls. is not usually a good yes and unless the gm says that's right he is your long lost brother and he is still mad about what you did to your mother right and then you have to sort of you know either work that out interpersonally or you have to you know have a gladiatorial combat or some other means of getting the the mercenaries on side and if it's done correctly it still keeps the tension of the scene. And it provides what the player wanted, which is more of a connection to the world and at least the potential of getting allies instead of just fighting everything.
0: Right. And that's an example of the role-playing adjustment of yes and to yes but. Because a comedy scene is generally a, uh, in, in structural terms, a dramatic scene in which one character seeks some sort of emotional payoff from the other, except it's done in a comic way. Whereas... Scenes in the vast majority of role-playing games are procedural scenes in which the characters are confronting external obstacles. So if that is the basis of your game, you as GM want to make sure that the tension is always high and that the things that the players introduce then lead to interesting um, obstacles that the players will want their characters to confront and either overcome or fail against in an interesting way that leads to another interesting obstacle. So the example you gave is a great example of yes but where the player says this is my long lost brother and the GM says yes but he's still nursing a grudge from that time back on the bridge six years ago. And so that uh, allows you to maintain the sense of tension and challenge that we expect from procedural storytelling while also Taking into account the suggestions that you're being thrown. And yes anding doesn't necessarily just always have to be the GM yes anding suggestions uh, made by the players. You can yes and in between uh, players in a group. And that's a dynamic that is often overlooked. But if you, for example, encounter the mercenaries, you could say to, you know, Joe the dwarf, another player or character, hey, that guy looks a lot like you. Is, is there some weird connection between the two of you? And that then puts the onus between p- the players, to so the player of Joe the Dwarf to go, yes, I, he, he is my long brother, and I am bearing a grudge against him from that thing he did on the bridge six years ago. Hold me back! Um, And so that's something that we don't often think about is the dynamics and improvisation between players. But that is often the most interesting thing that you remember at the end of the day is the uh, by-play between uh, the player characters, not the interaction necessarily with uh, the various non-player characters that the GM controls.
1: Yeah, the the use of yes anding, you know, I think pretty much one of the things that I believe as a GM and as a player is that it's everyone's job to sort of keep adding uh, spice to the story, to keep moving the story, to keep uh, what's happening at the table more fun than just going home and watching Game of Thrones would be. Uh, I think that you need to uh, always be on the lookout as a player to, you know, opportunities to yes and other players, to yes and the GM. Simultaneously, the GM needs to be on the lookout for what kind of things the players are trying to bring and to ideally you know yes and or as you say yes but them to provide you know as much of a sense in, on the part of the players that whether or not their characters are being hosed uh, by the situation they're being hosed in a situation that the player has sought out and that the uh, player even if the character is is playing a shlemiel to whom lizard men and uh mercenaries just happen to happen all the time that the player feels like he's getting or she's getting her uh her, her sort of investment in story, as opposed to just sitting around, and obviously that's a that's a goal to shoot for. It's not the sort of thing that's going to happen every time, but if you're always on the lookout for the opportunity to, to toss a conversational ball or a story ball into the into the mix, I think that you're going to do a better job, even on sort of normal days when all they are doing is going through the the going through the dungeon and room to room to room. You're still going to be able to maybe do a little improv, a little bit of scene setting, a little bit of, I don't know, you tell me how your uh, great Cleave killed nine of them, uh, that kind of thing.
0: Right, and the key to making this happen in your games is to shift your thinking between this part of the story is my territory and this part of the story is the GM's territory and start to look at ways that you can alide those territorial boundaries around the edges. So... In an improv scene, especially at the top of the scene, it's absolutely standard for one participant in the scene to define things about the other player's character. Uh, You could have started the scuba gear uh, ice cream scene by coming in and saying, I was going to order ice cream from you, but now that you seem suspiciously like a shark, I'm not sure which way to go. And so I may not have been thinking that I was playing a shark until you said that I was, but the yes and principle requires you to go, well, yes, I'm a shark and I'm trying to go straight. I'm on the 12-step program, so just chill out, even though you're a very tasty-looking scuba diver. Now, in role-playing, we don't want to necessarily go that far to give each other control over each other's characters in that way because you've got to continue using these characters Uh, presumably if you're playing a campaign model in particular, week in and week out. So you may not want me to define something really crucial about your character that you're then going to have to live with for the rest of the series, but there have to be some interesting things that I could define about your character and vice versa if we're willing to let down those boundaries a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that um, in that sort of play space, it, it helps if you have characters who are uh, sort of defined to have common pasts because uh, the you know they're the a party of adventurers that has been on many a bold quest before, or they've been on the the, the crew of the spaceship for a previous season before we join them on on this uh, episode, that kind of thing. So that you may not be able to say you know you know that you're deathly allergic to um, uh, garlic, but you can say. Um. remember that time that we ate that weird garlic on that other planet and everyone got really sick. I hope that you don't get reminded of that by this.
0: Right. And another key as a player to yes anding the GM is the GM will drop plot hooks in front of you. And if you're focused entirely on protecting your character from danger, if you think somehow you can keep tension and suspense away from your character, just by making self protective choices, a, if your GM is any good, you're fooling yourself and b he's giving you something interesting to play with he he's uh, tossing you the ball and so the thing to do is to yes and that so if the gm has your long-lost brother show up the self-protective thing is just go oh well we're just not speaking to each other and i don't care about him and anything he says i don't care what happens to him forget it and you can just nick neg- so that's an example of negating the gm in that the gm has given you a big plot hook whereas if you went yes that's my brother and whatever you are then uh you know tossing the ball back and that makes it uh, will even though your character is probably going to get in some sort of trouble or danger because of this character that the uh, gm is introducing that's what procedural role playing is all about and so if you yes and it you can then you will have more fun at the end of the session and by accepting the fact that there's some sort of obstacle coming out of this, you can maybe help define what that obstacle is. So you may decide to care about your brother, but how you decide to care about him remains up to you, and that's something that the GM would then have to adjust to. And uh, on that note, I think that the uh, lighting guy has turned down the lights on our little improv session, forcing us to move on to the next segment. And that next segment is Ask Ken and Robin, in which Ken and Robin are asked a question, and we answer and/or evade it. And in this case, the question is asked by Kevin J. Maroney, who poses the following: What RPG would you recommend for a group of players almost but not completely unfamiliar with RPGs? Ken,
1: I think that that would depend very heavily on what other things that group of players is interested in. Um, uh, if the presumption being that they are not completely unfamiliar with RPGs, so they uh, won't need to have it, you know, completely handheld through them, but that they're not interested in a specific RPG, because if they're saying, I've always heard about this Dungeons and Dragons, and I'd like to play it, the game you should play with them is Dungeons and Dragons, obviously. But if they are just sort of curious about RPGs and you know that they're all horror fans, you know, try Call of Cthulhu. If you uh, know that they're curious about RPGs but are all um, uh, science fiction fans, maybe the old uh, West End Star Wars is a, is a good choice. Or for all I know, the new Fantasy Flight Star Wars, although I haven't seen it, so I don't know how suitable it is for sort of a a, a good glide path into the hobby. I I think it it really depends first and foremost on what kind of story the the new players might be interested in. And certainly there are role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons that will encompass an awful lot of different kinds of story. And uh, there are enough, I think, relatively sound and relatively simple, or usually very sound and relatively simple, uh, games that, for pretty much any genre or, or group of interests, you can put a player into them and they'll uh, get up to speed pretty rapidly. I think that uh, if they're into uh, spy films or uh, spy thrillers, that Night's Black Agents actually does a pretty good job of introducing uh, sort of role-playing concepts and role-playing mechanics to people while maintaining the feel of the genre that they're looking uh that 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 interested them in the first place and i think that a game that does that is more likely to be a game that sticks uh rather than a game that you know say uh, you're you're playing you're, you know if you introduce them to say gurps uh, gurps is a is a fine system but there's a lot of you know little hills to climb before you get right to it now if you start Uh, the characters off with pre-generated, the players off with pre-generated characters, and you say, we're going to run this spy adventure in GURPS. Again, it's roll three, die six. There's not a lot to be keeping track of in terms of GURPS, and you can add more and more little uh, pieces of rules as you get uh, on with it. But I think that in terms of something where they're, you know, building a character from the ground up, or they're sort of coming to it completely cold, uh, or maybe they're all coming to it completely cold, that I think uh, you want a more focused and ideally uh, less potentially hairy system, uh, at at least in the early going.
0: Right, and and I think that you're first of all correct to suggest that what you're trying to do with finding a game for a new group of players who are uh, complete neophytes is really just like finding a game for any group of people with an additional level of prediction and prophecy attached to it so that you are trying to find not just the thing that will introduce them to role-playing in the first session, but the thing that they will still be interested in and still want to have played three or four or five sessions down the road, right? You're not just trying to introduce them to the concept, you're trying to hook them on it. And so you are trying to find that sort of middle ground between everybody's tastes. And the complexity issue, I think, is sometimes overestimated in choosing a game for a new group of people because if you are really familiar with a game that seems very complicated and crunchy you can run it in a way that takes away the taxation effect the difficulty of entry by at first doing a lot of stuff for them and making a lot of the systems and subsystems invisible to them and you can just by the way that you run it Pair it down to its bare essentials so that if you have gerps imprinted on your DNA and are willing to uh, forego, uh, you know, the full complexity of it and just sort of pare it down to its basics, if you design characters for everybody, design characters that are not just fun to play but also easy to play, you might actually have a better experience for them than if you played something extremely simple. Like, for example, I think the best simple introductory game that was geared to be super stripped down was greg stafford's prince valiant game but that probably doesn't have enough crunchy bits and and handles for people to uh, latch onto over the the long run and so if you know that this is a group of people who once they become acclimated to it, are going to want all of the customizability and emphasis on real-world physics in a a fantastic situation that you get from GURPS, you can sort of get them in the shallow end of GURPS and gradually uh, lead them toward it. On the other hand, if you know that this is a group of people who are never going to want to engage with that or never going to want to laboriously build and optimize their own characters in a later campaign down the road if the end state that you imagine for them is essentially a very stripped down loosey-goosey narrative system well you should start with that loosey-goosey narrative system and even then look for the things about that system which may not be complicated by the standards of an experienced player but are complicated for someone who's just completely new to it another thought is that you could run an essentially systemless game to begin with, in which you just get them used to the idea of describing their characters doing things. Uh, And that could be like a prelude to the main thing where, you know, two or three sessions down the road, the character sheets come out. Or it could be just a separate little exercise where you get them over the paradigm hump to just participating in an imagined ongoing narrative that everybody creates themselves.
1: I think that, um, and again, obviously every group is different, but I think it's probably easier for newbies to be f- more familiar with a less free-form game. That if there are dice and rules, and this says you can do that, and this says you can't do that, I think that's easier to internalize than, well, why can't I do it today? You know, right now I could do basically that same thing an hour ago. And for the GM to say, well, it sort of fits the story better, it seems more arbitrary and capricious than it's like, you know, roll die 20. If you get um, uh, uh, 18 or better, then you can do it. And if you don't, then you can't. That's at least something that that it's set out, and you, and you can see that die going on the table. Plus, I think rolling dice is just inherently fun and addictive behavior anyway. So I think that if you've got a game that has a dice engine to it, you know, starting them off with the dice instead of without the dice is, you know, it's leading with the sizzle, which I think is, is always a good idea. Uh, and there are plenty of loosey-goosey dice games like like Fate, for example. You can right. pick up Fate in maybe half an hour and uh, be, you know, fading the heck out of things in not too much longer.
0: It, it all depends on what you think they're going to have trouble with. That if somebody who's, uh, you know, really mathy is going to feel very comfortable in that uh, in that world, and statistically speaking, it's probably more likely that you're going to have that person be interested in role-playing games but it's also statistically unlikely that they have never been exposed to them and never tried them out whereas uh, you might have a group of people who are more familiar with storytelling or acting or something and they may be more more likely to have heard of it without trying it so it it, it really is an exercise in uh, figuring out what it is that they're going to need help grasping and what they're going to grasp right away and giving them more of uh, the second one and
1: leading them more gradually into the first. Yeah, I think that um, you can certainly, you know, ease up on the die rolling for groups that you think it's going to uh, buffalo. You know, for example, the classic iteration might be you're running D&D and the dice only come out during actual combat. That. The part where you're looking to find a secret door, you're looking to go into the tunnel, or you're doing anything else, the skill challenge is just, you know, you know, the dwarf can do it because he's a dwarf, and the elf can do it because he's an elf, and the uh, ranger can do it because he's a ranger. And you just sort of assume that uh, players, uh, characters can do things that they're trying to do uh, uh, until it gets down to the fight, and then the fight can be a, a very basic fight, a very rapid fight that just introduces... The, the dice mechanics, and then you look around, and if people's eyes are glittering with um, uh, with unleashed uh, lust uh, to kill and be killed by kobolds, then you can keep moving. And if they're all baffled and stunned, then maybe you go back out to the tavern, and you uh, role play some other sort of interaction that they might like better.
0: Right, and I think it's actually very unlikely that anyone is going to be buffaloed by die rolling, per se. Mm-hmm. That the roll a die, and you either succeed or fail on that is pretty intuitive. I think that what does tend to buffalo people, though, is the amount of stuff on their character sheet, uh, you know, figuring out what all their spells and abilities do, so that the reason for stripping it down to an experience that gets you your feet wet, which is the idea of collaborative narrative, is not to take the dice away from them. You might have them rolling dice all all the time and just, you know, essentially have, you know, a a high roll that feels high succeeds and a roll that seems low fails, but that you... Uh, get them on board with that before you then introduce them to the more detailed crunchy bits. Because I think that's what starts to throw people is like, what what does Magic Missile do? What, how does this feat work? What's this? And so if you can strip that down really early on, I think people will uh, then be able to take on board what all their crunchy bits do in a more gradual way later on.
1: And to an extent, this is sort of one of the many you know, insights that uh, Gygax and Arneson had when they did, you know, level-based gaming, is your first-level character, who is theoretically you when you're learning the game, has so many fewer options that, yeah, you can you can pretty much have the first-level spells for the magic user memorized in no time uh, as a player because th- there just aren't that many of them and they don't do much. And then you are always aspiring to not only increase in power but increase in mastery over the game system. And that same insight, obviously, has applied both to D&D and to probably the second-most successful new gamer introductor uh, introduction uh vampire that it has the same sort of effect that there's you know a a big menu of things that you can see out there but you don't have to worry about what they do to you because you're beginning in a fairly constrained uh power setting
0: right it it feeds you your character much more slowly as opposed to a a build point system which requires you to basically have already played other games and know what sort of character you want and and that it the reward of that comes out in play but it's a big thing to expect up up top so that even if you are generating characters for people you want to take a look at what characters that system generates and how complicated they are and how weird and counterintuitive all the different things that they can do might be
1: you know one of the re- other reasons that call of cthulhu works so well is obviously that you're a normal person you can't do anything a normal person can't do and the skill system is almost completely transparent it's like you have a skill that says anthropology you have a pretty good idea what that means or a skill that says shotgun you have a really good idea what that means
0: right there's no system mastery element of making sure that there's this one particular feat that you're useless uh, without and if you uh, as gm forgot to give it to them you have to pretend that they have it so i i think rather than saying uh you know any one particular rule set although i think you've mentioned uh fate a bit and that seems promising that really we're suggesting that you look at what the hurdles are going to be for your particular group and choose not just the rule set, but your presentation of the rule set to make those hurdles as low as possible.
1: And if you possibly can, make sure that uh, they have characters that don't uh, that aren't crippled, uh, obviously, in the opening story that you're going to tell them. Give those Call of Cthulhu guys plenty of dodge. Um, uh, give those uh, D&D guys... Um, you know, uh, either a cleric or a bunch of healing potions, make sure that their experience of the game is not um, you know, we had uh, 45 minutes of math followed by our deaths.
0: Right, and and that's that's another key thing, is that when you're looking at presenting them not just with a rule set but, but an experience, that experience doesn't end with the extent to which you pair away bits of the system it depends on what adventure have you created for them and does the adventure actually match what the characters can do so try and also think of the awesome things that those players would like to have their characters doing and create as simple and clear a fun a way of letting them do that in the first session as you possibly can
1: and most good uh, games have something along that line you know right there in the book obviously you know uh There are a number of good opening adventures for D&D. The uh, Haunting House in uh, Call of Cthulhu is a terrific opening adventure. There's a number of fairly straightforward ways that may not be, you know, the most challenging thing you've ever run as a GM, but, you know, when you're on the inside of it, a cliché looks exciting. Right.
0: Although there are, uh, and maybe this is turning into another segment, there are really (laughs) great opening uh, adventures that really set the uh, mood for the line and and teach you what uh, not only how the game works but what you do in the game and then there are other things that are sometimes sort of afterthoughts or are so focused on being teaching tools that they aren't actually fun experiences so you'll want to really look at them and evaluate to what extent they they deliver on that promise and uh, as always when we start to uh, head into another topic it's time to end the segment
1: We follow the familiar chutter of Selectric typewriter keys uh, into the comfy den of how to write good, and I suspect that, Robin, you have uh, the tinkling of Freitag's triangle in mind, so why don't you get us started? So today I thought we would take a look at short story structure, which is something
0: that is key to not only people who wish to write stories, but people who wish to better understand why they like some stories better than others as readers, and it's something that's sort of very much in my mind as creative director for Stone Skin Press, where I've been, uh, for the first time, uh, editing large numbers of other people's stories and helping them shape uh, their stories in some cases, and uh, asking them to change a comma uh, in other cases, Uh, and... Some people uh, as beginning writers really struggle with the simplicity that is required of you when you are writing a short story. And the the key, first of all, is, uh, so this is advice that I am presenting to people who are still working on uh, mastering the form. And as in any creative form, often the very most interesting works are works that either uh, break the rules or more often covertly follow the rules while seeming outwardly to break them. Uh, But in any art form, you want to learn the basics, the fundamentals, the rules of how things work before you then try and depart from them. And the simple rule of a short story is that it is A, short, and B, it is A, story, that you are introducing a situation at the beginning Uh, which you develop through a series of scenes and moments and that you resolve at the end. And so what you are doing is you are creating essentially an equation that has to balance out between the opening of your story and the end of your story. Now, you want the, uh, in some cases, the resolution to... uh, come as a surprise. Uh, Often it is a more satisfying and memorable story if it is an emotional surprise as opposed to just an outward plot twist surprise. But there's, uh, you know, certainly lots of classic stories that turn on a classic twist of the plot. But What you want to do is, particularly when you're looking at at your opening of of your story and looking at the end of the story, is make sure that you are following and developing and finding different shadings of a single story idea throughout the course of the story. And that is what I call the through line, and lots of other people call it the through line too, of your story. And so the the key is uh, to find a simple focus that goes all the way through the story like a river – And just as the old joke uh, goes that, you know, the key to sculpting an elephant is to start with a big block of marble and then chip away that anything that doesn't look like an elephant. When you are creating your short story, when you are wondering why you are spending time on this character or this situation or this observation or this detail rather than another detail, the question is, does it look like an elephant? Does it match your through line. And so the really strong stories that you remember are ones that uh, even though they have a, sort of a layer of realism attached to them or a layer of uh, philosophy or whatever it is that, that the writer is laying on, onto it, there's this spine underlying the entire story that lends it a sense of unity. And that seems uh, very simple, but uh, simplicity is tricky it is hard to pull off and so the the trick is either uh intuitively or explicitly to yourself in a little note that you write out at the beginning and if you're struggling it helps to you know
1: set out exactly remind yourself what your story is all about know what your through line is i think um maybe an example or two might might help so if you're looking at something like uh, pose the black cat the through line is man versus cat, right? Everything has to go to the man is going to try and kill his cat, and the cat is going to kill the man, and all of the story elements have to go, first of all, why is a guy trying to kill a cat? Second of all, you know, uh what is the cat's response going to be, given that we're an Edgar Allan Poe story, and therefore that the tone is sort of exaggerated and romantic and demonic, as opposed to maybe a more Stephen King story, where... The cat trying to kill you is more uh, outward directed and it's all in the in the in the hero's um, uh, perceptions of things. Or maybe you're in a uh, Hemingway story where killing the cat happens early and then it's your response to killing the cat that is what turns the story around.
0: Right. And in all of those cases. So I think, first of all, you made a really great point, which is that the thing that you bring to the story that is you uh will change depending on who you are and what you're writing about and what you're interested in. And so that you could take, you know, 10 different writers and give them the same basic through line and they would all come up with something very different. But the very skilled writers would come up with something that feels very unified and that each moment magnifies the situation and finds a different angle on it and then finally takes you home at the end. Another key to uh, through line is understanding what it is that your main character your focus character uh, wants and is trying to do what is the journey that they go on so it can be as simple as you know man encounters cat that tries to kill him man is killed by cat or man kills cat or it could be you know in this uh you know in the john cheever story it's the you know man comes to terms with killing his neighbors uh cat and this tells you something about suburban life or or whatever it is but you have a unity of understanding of your character and and you ask yourself what journey your character goes on there's different ways in which you can create those developing scenes that take that initial thing that you first established and then move on through. But if your first scene is not very clear, if it doesn't immediately set up whatever the key situation is, that needs to be resolved and doesn't, and it gives you, for example, uh, one mistake that people sometimes make is by presenting you with multiple motivations for a character in the opening part of the scene or having a character appear to a, Uh, follow one set of uh, motivations at the beginning and then do things that do not agree with that set of motivations at the end. Now, you can do that intentionally if that's the point is to resolve the fact that there is a disjunction between their motivations as they understand them consciously and what they're doing unconsciously. That could be the point of your story. But often uh, a failing of uh, short stories that fail to obey the balancing equation structure of a story is that you lose track of the thread of what it is that your character uh, wanted or what you presented about what the character wanted or you gave us three different reasons why the character wanted it and that of course makes it much more difficult to resolve. Um, It is easy to be discursive uh, and sort of go off track either because you may be uh, one thing to watch out for is that you are not actually telling the story that you think that you want to tell. Uh, if you come up with a, a story that is just a series of elements that you want to connect together, that's very challenging actually to build them into a single through line. If you uh, are really interested in golf and have this idea of a, a story that turns on the uh you know, some obscure golf rule like uh, you know, Tiger Woods thing this weekend where he signed off on the wrong card or, or some such and you wanna write a story that's about that that brings that into play and brings in some interesting thought you have about that, or as often happens in science fiction and fantasy, that there's some detail of your world that you want to bring out. It's okay to do that, but you have to make sure that you have a through line that connects all of those elements and that you're not just starting out with a series of three or four puzzle pieces. You've got scenes, but you don't know how to connect them because that is uh, going to show up on on the page and you're going to, to lose uh, track of it. And so if all of a sudden, you know, it's a story of a man's inner transformation, but scene three in the middle is just a lot of talk about your theory on whether Tiger Woods should have been disqualified or not. You the reader is going to hit that and bump off and wonder why you were setting that up. And so always make sure that you're, uh, and it's, you know, happens surprisingly often with be- uh, emerging or beginning writers, that you sort of have an inchoate sense of a number of story elements that you want to address, but you haven't yet done the battle of nailing them all down into a really coherent, quick through line that you can explain with the with the pithiness of, you know, man fights cat, man wins, or man fights cat, man understands uselessness of his existence, or whatever that through line is. Just as uh, when you are trying to decide what game you want to buy at a a show like Gen Con and want to hear a really quick, pithy description of what it is that your characters do in that game, games have through lines too. And uh, in a short story, you want to sort of be... Told up front as a reader what the situation is and what possible things can engage you about that situation, and then you want that situation resolved. So, discursiveness um, can work in some longer form formats, whether it's the serialized television of a, a dr- drama like Mad Men or Game of Thrones, or a novel or series of novels. So, uh, you know, you can have the vast sprawl of the Game of Thrones books in a series of books, but in a short story, it's not about sprawl, it's about clearly connected dots and about balancing an equation.
1: Which is not to say you can't have a short story that really interacts with a element of the outside world, whether that be, you know, the rules of golf or some awesome piece of the fantasy or science fiction universe you've invented. It's just that the story then has to the through line has to run right through that area. Exactly I mean, so, yeah. The, the golf tournament against the evil cat has to turn on that rule, right? That, uh, ha, at the last minute, the cat broke the rules, and that's how you've uh, killed the cat at the end of the golf game. Or um, you, you're, you're fighting the cat on a zero-gravity space station, and your awesome methodology of creating artificial gravity can become the clever thing that your hero comes up with at the end to confound the cat's ability to land on all the walls Uh, with its paws always facing out uh, because of its innate catness, Right. You know, whatever it is that you want to tell the story about can, uh, if you point your through line through it, that A, it makes your through line, you know, uh, have another uh, dimension and another color and another component that you can always be alluding to and painting in, and B, it really brings out that element because you have pointed the reader right at it. And the reader's like, Oh my God, I hope they can figure out artificial gravity or this guy's going to get torn to pieces by that cat.
0: Right. And, and the thought process there, when you're starting with an, uh, with an idea and then trying to build a three line around it is how do I, you know, if, if the thing is about the, the rules of golf that you want to expose the question that you then ask yourself is how do I create someone? What, what character is going to really care about this rule of golf and make that revolve around this situation that changes them so that the reader then cares about them. Because as a reader, you need to be oriented in the story. It's not just a sequence of random events. It's a situation that you're presented with that you then know how to feel about. And you know how what you want to happen, uh, what positive possible positive moments can uh, arise from that. And you also have to know what you don't want to have happen, what the negative downside of that is. And that gets back into the Uh, Idea from Hamlet's Hit Points of how an engaging narrative moves you up and down uh, emotionally until you hit the resolution. And that's the mechanics of how you hook a reader into a situation by uh, finding an emotional motivation that they can relate to that orients them in the story and gives them a reason to care about what's going on as opposed to just being presented with, uh, either a series of uh, events that they don't know how to feel about because they don't see how they connect or just a you know a thought or an idea without a human motivation attaching to that that makes the reader care because if all you want to do is explain that you think Tiger Woods should have been disqualified, there's a better format for doing that than a short story. It's called a blog post. Yeah, but if you see that that somehow relates to something that you care about emotionally that that relates to human nature in some way and that you can make other people care about emotionally, then you've got your through line. Uh, You can start with that idea, but if you can build a character and a feeling into it and can resolve that feeling at the end, then you're cooking with gas. You've got your short story. now, finally, as the pulsing of the chronotons and the clanking of the Vortex gear suggests, we are once more in proximity to Ken's Time Machine, our every popular segment in which the forces of Time Incorporated assign Ken to go back in time and change, blandish, or otherwise adjust the time stream. And in this case, we have an unusual situation in which uh, someone, one of our listeners, has come to Time Incorporated uh, with a potential brief, and I think in this case we want to not only... Uh, examine how Ken might achieve this brief, but in fact uh, whether The uh, brief given can result in the end point uh, that is desired by the client, and indeed whether that is uh, worth attempting. So we've got a lot to unpack here, and this is requested by Falco Sieverding, who uh, asks, how would you make Henry Wallace vice president in 1944, and would this prevent the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So there are all sorts of different ways that we can get into this question, and uh, I think we'll uh, hit a number of them as we go, but let's start with the awesomely fascinating uh, figure of Henry Wallace himself, America's most mystical vice president. Ken, what can you tell us about Henry Wallace?
1: Uh, Henry Wallace began his uh, sort of uh, political career. He was part of a Iowa political dynasty. Um, He was a liberal New Deal Republican, uh, and he was brought into uh, President Roosevelt's cabinet as Secretary of Agriculture, and he um, rapidly sort of became a very popular figure in sort of the progressive press because he was a progressive and he was sort of, you know, given the, <laughs> the, the sort of front row uh, seat that agriculture was having during the depression, what with dust bowls and, uh, and bread lines. It was a bigger deal then than it is. Now, it was that's a bigger sure. deal in, you know, 1933 than it is now. Um, and so he sort of built that into a real uh, body of support in the party and in the country. And as a result, Uh, became President Roosevelt's vice president uh, in uh, his vice presidential candidate in 1940. And um, uh, uh, obviously um, Roosevelt won (laughs) that uh, election. And so he was vice president from 40 to 44. And then in 1944, he was replaced on the ticket by Harry Truman. And so when Roosevelt died in office in 1945, Harry Truman became president, not Henry Wallace. And uh, if I can just sort of, at the top of the program, uh, lay out the fact that uh, I'm not sure that uh, Falco knows, but I'm pretty sure my bosses at Time Incorporated know, getting Henry Wallace replaced on the ticket by Harry Truman was one of my most uh, successful and proudest moments as a Time Incorporated <laughs> operative. So going back and, and doing it over again is perhaps uh, not on the cards, because the downside to Henry Wallace and, is that, of course, he was a communist tool. He was not personally a communist, but he was very, very, very fond of communists. He hung around with a lot of the communists. The communists, of course, had a you know uh, vested interest in promoting the most uh, liberal, the most left-wing members of uh, the president's cabinet. And they had a very disciplined publicity organization. Wallace was no... Uh, was, was was not immune to such blandishments. He uh, famously went over to uh, Siberia in 1944 and visited the Magadan, uh, the town of Magadan, which of course is sitting on one of the largest prison camps in the world. And in 1944, that's saying something. And uh, came back and told everyone that it was just like a big town meeting there in Magadan. So he was uh, at the very least easily duped by the communists. And uh, depending on who you read, may or may not have uh, had actual Soviet agents on his uh, uh, payroll in the office of the vice president and in the sort of surrounding executive branch that he was running more and more of as Roosevelt's health would fail and as Roosevelt obviously had to pay more attention to the war, uh, there is at least one A historian who is perhaps not the most reliable historian in the universe, who says that Wallace spent at least some time uh, as an actual KGB asset. This is the guy, one of the uh, historians of espionage, who has worked with the Matrokin Archive, which was the KGB archive uh, that got brought over to the West during the uh, end of the Cold War. And he says that there's proof in there that Wallace was a actual uh, agent of the Soviet Union. Now he has not shared that proof with anyone and that seems like the kind of thing that you would publish if you actually had it. But he may have seen a lot of indications from KGB guys or NKVD at the time saying that um uh, that Wallace was, you know, one of ours or reliable or other terms that lead you to believe that had he been president in 1944 uh, or 1945 we might very well have avoided uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wallace Uh, certainly was uh, shocked by the level of carnage that those bombings created, but that we also would have had uh, communist domination of Finland and Greece and Iran and possibly Turkey and maybe the northern half of Japan uh, in uh, the end of uh, the uh, World War II arrangement. So we would have uh, traded 100,000 lives for many, many tens of millions. So that might not have been the uh, ideal uh, calculus.
0: Right. And Wallace's uh, partisans in uh, the historical academy uh, do try to paint a picture of a a naive guy who was the victim as much of an anti-communist smear as he was uh, an actual tool of the communists. So there is, uh, just for the sake of asterixing, a a counter-narrative that Wallace fans uh, still uh, persist in clinging to.
1: Yeah, although the the fact that since he's so easily uh, duped and misled by communists still does not make him an ideal person to be president as the uh, Soviet Union is gobbling up half of Europe.
0: Right, and and his open-mindedness goes beyond political systems, as I suggested earlier. He was though not... Oh, yes, it does. Though, though not a, a theosophist, was uh, certainly theosophist adjacent and, uh, mm-hmm. as I understand, uh, is the one who uh, convinced FDR to Put the Illuminati eye of the pyramid
1: on the uh, on the money. Yes, and um, his specific connection to uh, the mystical comes with his friendship with uh, Nicholas Rorick, who was a uh, <laughs> um, he was a peace activist and a, uh, a amateur uh, botanist, which is I think probably what put him on Wallace's radar. But he was also a crazy person who went wandering around Central Asia looking for Shambhala and um he went wandering around um central asia looking for shambhala in, in in no small part on the us department of agriculture's dime because he is sent off to find uh, drought resistant grass in theory but is also uh, using this opportunity to uh, interview tibetan monks about uh, the magic buddha who lives in the hollow earth and other wonderful things and Rorik, at the very least is the sort of person who believes that if you know the world just uh hums and looks in the right direction. Uh, peace will break out spontaneously, and of course, at the worst is a um uh, is a charlatan and uh, at at any rate, the part where uh, Wallace and Rorick exchanged a number of letters in which Wallace used the salutation Dear guru uh to uh, Rorick, implying that he basically swallowed rorick's line of uh, malarkey <laughs> to the same degree that he swallowed the communist party line is uh the thing that basically you know, knocked him out of the lists in the 1948 election when he ran on the Progressive Party ticket against Harry Truman and against Strom Thurmond, who ran on the Dixiecrat ticket. Right,
0: and there's also some interesting letters that he uh, wrote to Roosevelt, which seem infused by uh, uh, mystical uh, awareness. And uh, if you want to find an alternate Illuminati history, he was also a high degree Mason, uh, you can find those as the basis for a... uh, uh, an occult counter narrative of uh, the World War II uh, era, although uh, the other side of that is uh, it probably he was just joking.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think that uh, the again, um, I suppose if you don't believe in communism and you do believe in Shambhala, you can uh, present a different Henry Wallace entirely, who is um, uh, working hand in glove with the Great White Brotherhood to bring about the uh, the new Lemuria on Earth. But I think that we we have plenty to to go by. Uh, in his in his career, that suggests that he's just the sort of um, friendly dupe who likes to believe things.
0: So, if if Falco's faith in Henry Wallace is misplaced, uh, his ultimate desire, of course, is to uh, see World War II concluded without. Hiroshima and Nagasaki being bombed. Uh, Is that something that you see
1: in any available timeline? Um, I spent a little bit of time thinking about it, and I think that the Ken's uh, time machine constraint of me having to show up means that I'm not going to be able to show up in Japan in 1944 and convince Hideki Tojo to do anything, because he's not going to listen to an American, even an American with an ample supply of sake and a... uh, startling uh, a, amount of information about american ship production i think that the time to i mean I, again i am certainly uh, with the majority of historians who believe that without hiroshima and nagasaki instead you get a invasion of japan which kills many more millions of japanese people in the uh, uh short run and then also <laughs> non trivially hundreds of thousands of americans and british uh and again, possibly opens up the northern half of Japan to Soviet occupation. So I think that avoiding the invasion is crucial, and I suspect that a president as concerned with people's opinion of him as Henry Wallace would might even wind up using the A-bomb as he sees the invasion bogged down, as tens of thousands of casualties are coming back. I mean, just from the same humanitarian Uh, uh, motives that caused Truman to use it in the first place, except that Wallace would have used it possibly on Tokyo as opposed to on uh, sort of demonstration cities the way that Truman did. I don't think that uh, the um, the, that even the the, the desired outcome necessarily avoids Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it, it certainly avoids those two bombings, but I don't think it avoids the use of atomic weapons. I think the way that you get no atomic weapons is either you interfere with Tojo's decision in 1941 to go to war with the United States. Because in September of 1941, uh, Tojo is appointed head of the war cabinet, right? He's, he, and he's given plenipotentiary authority by Hirohito to re-examine the entire strategic posture of Japan. You know, the, 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 the uh, army has wanted war with America since forever. Uh, the Navy has been more skeptical of it. Yamamoto uh, then horns in with his great Pearl Harbor idea, which is uh, a, like classic Yamamoto overthinking the problem. Um and Tojo at this point has the opportunity to say, you know, great, even Yamamoto doesn't think this war is winnable if it goes on for a year and a half. Uh, what are the odds the Americans are going to just say no mas? And Tojo could easily have said, look, if the problem is oil, let's just attack the Dutch East Indies. Let's avoid the Philippines. Let's certainly avoid Hawaii. And let's make the Americans take the first swing. It, it, if they have to put their uh navy on ships and sail it across the middle of the Pacific we can still get surprise on them then uh, if they have to attack truck or any of our islands that are out there between uh, Japan and the home ground and again if you look at the battles for guadalcanal those were those were fairly near run it was not a uh, sure thing that the americans would win and without pearl harbor as a unifying force and without um uh, uh the loss of the battleships to cause the rethinking of carrier power that uh, it did, you know, the, the American fleet might well have been vulnerable. We almost lost the Battle of the Coral Sea. It was basically a, a very, very uh, dangerous draw. So I think that it's not impossible that Tojo could have been talked around by a not Japanese guy or by a Japanese guy. Well, of guy. course,
0: this is a, a fully featured time machine that we put you in right. can, and it has a paradox dis- displacement matrix so it is a trivial matter to make you appear japanese and of course to do the instant translation thing that is a hallmark of any uh, time traveler so I, that that's just a, a minor technical requirement that we've we've overcome certainly
1: right well if i if i set the um uh, turning japanese dial um uh, to uh, full full on taking a tour through the eighties to get the proper musical accompaniment. Um, I think that it wouldn't be impossible to get Tojo to, um, uh, to go for the Dutch East Indies. And then uh, a war between the United States and Japan, if it occurs, occurs without the sense of the stab in the back and the, we have to put these guys down like rabbit dogs sentiment that was so universal in America uh, the possibility of getting Roosevelt not to insist on unconditional surrender in the Pacific might also be a uh, uh, something that could be could be done if the Japanese believed that we would not dethrone the emperor. They might have been more willing to surrender without a atomic bombing or with a demonstration shot. But the existence of the unconditional surrender policy and the uh, stab in the back. Uh, I, I think the stab in the back led to the unconditional surrender policy as well as uh Roosevelt's very uh <laughs> very correct understanding that you couldn't just turn Germany over to different Nazis and have a functional uh Europe. Um I I think that the uh the, un- the unconditional surrender policy might be harder to shift actually than the nature of the war. Another possibility would be to uh publish the uh intercepts of the Japanese uh radio communication to their planes during the Panay incident. The Japanese sank the USS Panay on the river on the, on the, uh, river outside Shanghai, I believe, in, uh, 1937. It may have been the river outside Nanking. It was a river in, uh, in China. The, the Japanese sank an American, uh, naval, uh, vessel on the river and they apologized. And of course, the Navy had intercepted communications and broken the codes, proving that it was done deliberately, that it was on Japanese orders. If you publish those, um, uh, those codes in, in a Hearst paper, uh, I think that you very possibly get a war between, America and Japan early, which means that we don't have the atomic bomb by the time it has to be over one way or the other. So that avoids the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And again, I think that we might have been more willing to let the Japanese off um, uh, uh, without uh, uh, the complete obliteration of their society uh, if it had started as a war over China as opposed to a sneak attack on American home soil.
0: Right. So it's more of a, a geopolitical Scrum than an existential battle,
1: right? Yeah, I. I but I. But I really think that the, the the smart play here is to get Tojo to go after uh, the Dutch East Indies, and then maybe to go after the Russians in Vladivostok uh, instead of uh, Hawaii, because again, you get uh, America left out of the Pacific War. Right? With you're never you're going to stop the Americans from building the atomic bomb unless you somehow you know prevent. Uh, the Nazis from driving every Jewish physicist to America, but you're maybe going to be able to move the war against Japan uh, to such a point that you don't have to use it on the Japanese or that you don't wind up using it at all because the war ends before you need to. That does run the risk of course, of um, uh, of uh, changing the balance of power in Europe, but I don't think that the threat the Japanese posed to Siberia necessarily overcomes the huge demographic advantages that uh, Stalin has against Hitler on the Eastern Front, especially given that Hitler is vastly uh, uh, mishandling that opportunity.
0: So the lesson here is that uh, when clients uh, come to Time Incorporated asking Ken to achieve goals for them, it is always uh, uh, wise of them to just give him the goal uh, rather than the means to achieve the goal. Because in in this case, uh, uh, you reject the means of making Henry Wallace vice president, but you have many other tricks up your sleeve.
1: Well, uh, fewer than few, fewer than with some. The atomic bombings are very, very difficult to derail and uh, I'm not entirely sure that a, a a different Japanese-American war winds up killing fewer people. I, You know, I'm willing to take a stab at it if uh, the Time Incorporated guys think that the ripple effect is worth it, but... Well,
0: there, there's also the, the Chekhov gun on the table issue with when an atomic bomb is developed in whatever time stream, it's going to have to be dropped on somebody for proof of concept. And so uh, it's hard to envision a timeline in which no bomb is ever dropped in anger. And uh, that just might mean that the, uh, you know, it happens in Berlin in 51 or uh, some other time. It's uh, very uh, sadly, very difficult to imagine any, a world filled with humans in which uh, a weapon of that decisiveness is never demonstrated to be that decisive.
1: Yeah, I think that the certainly the other way to prevent the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is to have uh, Hitler succeed at the Battle of the Bulge such that we have to drop it on Dresden and Hamburg. Um,
0: so do you uh, figure that this, uh, all in all, that there is a way that you would want to attack that, that you think uh, would be a clear benefit or that you're just merely... Uh, that any timeline that you could interfere with is just changing
1: the circumstances of the inevitable horror. I think the closest thing we can get to a possibility would be a war in which Japan is aimed at Russia, not at the United States. Because the Russians will not build the A-bomb, and we will. And the chance that that war ends with an atomic bombing of Japan... Drops somewhat compared to the chances of an atomic bombing of Germany. But I think that the actual evasion of the A bomb entirely, it may just be a luck of the draw thing. Uh, If you have the Japanese American War break out in 1937, such that it's over before we have the bomb, and you have the European War fight on schedule, such that it also is over before we have the bomb without needing the bomb, we wind up building the bomb. And then I suspect we do a demonstration shot on, you know, Bikini Atoll or the uh, desert in Australia or somewhere just to prove uh, what we're talking about. But really, moving the uh, U.S.-Japanese War ahead by four years is probably your best bet to avoid the A-bomb being dropped on anyone uh, on purpose for the first time.
0: Yeah, so that that timeline (laughs) remains uh, bad news for Henry Wallace, but it's maybe a slightly brighter timeline than the one we have and on that note i think uh you have uh, well laid out the parameters of your assignment stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors drive through rpg dork tower Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music,
1: as always, is by James Semple.
0: Ask the audience for a place and an occupation at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.